This is Double Truck Stories, the home for some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Justin Ellis. What exactly is it that makes the Golden State Warriors one of the best teams in the NBA? Okay, sure, talent is one piece of the puzzle. Any team that has Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, Draymond Green, and Klay Thompson is going to be a pretty good team. But then again, maybe not. Back in 2014, the Warriors were coming off a 51-win season that ended with a first-round exit from the playoffs at the hands of the Clippers. Steve Kerr had just taken over as coach. It was a job he had zero experience with at the time. He needed to make a big move, something that would energize his team and transform their pace of play. Needless to say, with two NBA championships in three seasons, it looks like Kerr's plan worked wonderfully. In today's episode, Faxer Holmes takes us back in time, as Kerr developed a plan that would create one of the most explosive offenses in basketball. It's a story of how passing and a charcuterie board at an airport bar in Oakland created one of the most dominant teams in recent NBA history. Before we jump in, a friendly reminder, if you like Double Truck Stories, you could do us a favor and subscribe to the show wherever it is you listen to all of your favorite podcasts. Join me after the show as Baxter talks about how you recreate scenes and diagram X's and O's with almonds and cranberries. And now, here's the charcuterie board that revolutionized basketball by Baxter Holmes. The charcuterie board that revolutionized basketball by Baxter Holmes. The sanctuary for the early check-ins, the merely laid over, and the maddeningly delayed is tucked between gates 25 and 26 in Terminal 2 at Oakland International Airport. It's called Vino Volo, Italian for wine flight, and it offers some 200 labels of the former in advance of the aggravations of the latter. It's 3.30 p.m. on a Friday in early August 2014 when two middle-aged men, both conspicuously tall, both with the looping grace of ex-athletes, commandeer chairs at the end of Vino Volo's five-person bar. Seconds later, back in the kitchen, Kevin Ninkovich hears a shout from a colleague on the floor. Steve Kerr just sat down. Ninkovich, a 28-year-old bartender at Vino Volo, is a Warriors obsessive. Growing up as a five-foot-and-change guard, he even imagined himself as Kerr, a dead-eye who lacked physical gifts but could drill a title-sealing tray if called upon. Now here the man is, the Warriors' new coach, named to the position just 10 weeks prior, sitting alongside his old college teammate and newly named assistant, Bruce Frazier. Ninkovich is not about to let this chance slip away. After another staffer takes their order, two glasses of Pinot Noir and a three-meat, three-cheese charcuterie board, Ninkovich preps it and bounds out of the kitchen, armed with an agenda. Ninkovich's fandom stretches back to the 1990s Run TMC era, when Tim Hardaway, Mitch Richmond, and Chris Mullen were the NBA's highest-scoring trio. Ninkovich loved how that team moved the ball, and is no fan of the scheme installed by Kerr's predecessor, Mark Jackson. Jackson's Warriors had won 51 games the season before, but had averaged just 247 passes per game. Not merely the worst mark in the NBA that season, but 15 fewer than the next closest team. When those Warriors fell in the first round to the Clippers, Alvin Gentry, then a Clippers assistant, was left wondering why the Warriors played so much one-on-one -on -one isolation basketball. Personnel-wise, they reminded Gentry of the mid-2000 Suns, an offensive powerhouse led by point guard Steve Nash. 
Golden State had the dynamic point guard, the lethal perimeter scorers, the forwards who could pass, the high IQ playmakers. All they need, Gentry thought then, is the right scheme. All they need, Nikovic thinks now, as he delivers the charcuterie board, is the right scheme. So, Nikovic, with a captive audience of Warriors coaches, musters the courage to speak. What are you going to do? He asked Kerr. Will our one-on-one offense end? Will you implement the triangle offense? Funny you should mention that, Kerr replies. We've got some ideas. Here, I'll show you. And then, as Fraser looks on, Kerr swipes clear the wooden board, casting the handle in the roll of a basket. He positions the board's dried cranberries and Marcona almonds into two five-on-five teams in a half-court setting, with the cranberries relegated to defense. Suddenly, Almond Stephen Curry, hovering near the top of the key, swings an imaginary ball to Almond Clay Thompson on the wing, then cuts to the near corner while Thompson dumps it down to Almond Andrew Bogut. Thompson and Curry set picks for each other along the perimeter while Bogut weighs his options. Find open almonds or back down his helpless cranberry. These, Kerr explains, are aspects of the triangle offense which he played in during the Bulls' 1990s heyday. But then Kerr pulls back, giving the Noshes a breather. He notes that the Warriors would be foolish to run the triangle exclusively. It wouldn't best utilize their dangerous gunners. No, Kerr says, they'll run a hybrid. These ideas have, for weeks, been rattling around Kerr's head, but he hasn't yet begun to diagram plays or the scheme itself until now. And so for 10 minutes, Ninkovich watches as Kerr lays the foundation for the most devastating offense the NBA has not yet seen. If only he could somehow turn the league's worst passing team into its best. Four weeks later, the Warriors' new coaches are convening at a Napa Valley resort for a three-day meet-and-greet. There's tennis, there's swimming, there's plenty of wine, there's a croquet tournament that Gentry, now a Warriors assistant, will win, proclaiming in the aftermath, I'm the greatest black croquet player ever, before stripping off his shirt and pouring Perrier over everybody. The mood is light, but everyone understands the scope of this task. Coaches exchange ideas, watch hours of film, four sessions of three to four hours each. And it's here, with preseason a few weeks away, that Kerr begins outlining the plan for his staff, the one that's been marinating throughout his career and began to fully ripen on that Vino Volo charcuterie board. In Kerr's mind, it's both simple and radically complex. He envisions elements from Phil Jackson's triangle, which called for passing from all five players. He'd loved how the system used Bulls forwards and centers as passers, perfect for Bogut, David Lee, and others. Still, he doesn't want to abandon the high screen and roll actions that Curry had used in prior seasons to rain down threes. Instead of employing a full-on triangle, what Kerr wants is a blended system, and there is much to cram into the blender. In the mid-1990s, the Jazz, which his Bulls had twice faced in the finals, tormented Kerr. Those Jazz would feed the ball to forward Karl Malone in the post before guards John Stockton and Jeff Hornacek would screen for each other, with the open player receiving the ball back from Malone. Those actions are dubbed split cuts, and Kerr hated guarding them. To him, guarding movement is far more challenging than guarding isolation. A nightmare, he calls it. And he envisions a similar nightmare for defenses guarding Curry and Thompson. It's also a matter of taste. Iso basketball, where one guy is going one-on-one and everybody is standing around. I don't like that, Kerr says. I don't like that at all. On defense, the Warriors are stout, loaded with long-limbed forwards who can easily switch on any pick-and-roll. Kerr doesn't want to tinker with a squad that ranked third in defensive efficiency the season before, but offensively, they ranked 12th. 
Kerr knows that eight of the previous 10 NBA champs ranked in the top 10 in both categories. He told general manager Bob Myers that if they wanted to win a title, they need to do the same. Transitioning from heavy isolation to heavy passing and movement would be dramatic, but there's a makeup in every player who's ever played, Kerr says, that if you get to touch the ball and you get to be a part of the action, whether it's an assist man, ball mover, shooter, dribbler, the more people who are involved in the offense, the more powerful it becomes. As Myers puts it, all of us want to be part of something. Still, Kerr knows he has one problem and a vexing one at that. It's easier to persuade a bad team to evolve than one that just won 50 games. Kerr has seen new coaches slash and crash upon being hired. With a good team, he needs to tread lightly. As the eight-game preseason slate approaches, pressure is mounting. Normally, such games carry minimal stakes, a chance to tinker with lineups or plays. Teams don't try hard to win. Not these Warriors, who are unveiling Kerr's dramatic new scheme. The coaches believe they need to win that it needs to work, or they'll risk losing their players. And then there's this. For all of Kerr's experience in the NBA, he has zero experience as a head coach. If you were casting the role of Warriors metrics guru, Sammy Gelfand would almost be too on the nose. A bespectacled, scruffy-haired Chicago native, Gelfand, the Warriors manager of analytics, was one of the few holdovers from Mark Jackson's staff. Still, Kerr and Gelfand are kindred spirits. Just as Kerr is the sort to diagram plays with snacks, Gelfin grew up doing similar things with his breakfast cereal, staging elaborate games between his lucky charms, keeping score, his mind always at work. And so it is that during the preseason, Kerr turns to Gelfin in search of a concise, gettable metric that can serve as a benchmark for the team and in doing so, unite it. When they sit down to analyze the previous season in search of a grand unifying metric, one figure stands out. What about this one? Passes per game, Gelfand asks. Kerr considers it. It has potential. It fits right in with the culture he hopes to develop. He looks at Gelfand. What's a good number? Gelfand knows the Warriors ranked last in the NBA in that category under Jackson in 2013-14. He also knows that many of their turnovers had come counterintuitively on possessions in which they passed the ball fewer than twice. The less they passed, the sloppier they played. He also knows that when they passed more than three times in a single possession, they led the league in points per possession on such plays. In essence, when the Warriors moved the ball, we were, Gelfin says, almost unstoppable. They just didn't do it very much. Now, in search of their number, they analyze teams whose styles they want to emulate. The Bobcats, who led the league the year before with 338.2 passes per game? Nope. Too much of a leap. Besides, they barely posted a winning record. The defending champ Spurs, aiming for 334 passes as the Spurs had the season before, was also too lofty. When the Warriors tracked their passes in preseason games using Kerr's new scheme, the squad routinely hit the 280 mark. And so, over the course of the two-week preseason, a nice round figure was identified. Something easy to remember, but challenging to attain. 300. Can we even do this? Myers wonders. It's early November, and doubt is creeping into the mind of the Warriors' GM. His team has begun the season 5-0, and but basketball-wise, it's a disaster. The Warriors are racking up turnovers like they're storing them for winter, averaging 21.6 per game. That's not only the worst mark in the league, it's about five turnovers per game more than the worst team in the prior season, and only a few off the worst mark in NBA history. 
After each game, Gelfin has been feeding Kerr post-game statistical reports, and the first stats listed are always passes, passes per game, secondary assist, free throw assists, the number of possessions with 0-2 to two passes, 3-5, to 6+. plus. In morning film sessions, while coaches show players 15-20 to 20 clips from the previous game, they also post passing totals. And indeed, the Warriors are hitting that 300-per-game mark, averaging 320.8, in fact, through the first five games eighth best in the league. The good news then, the team is passing. The bad news, they're overpassing. Don't pass for the sake of it, Kerr implores his team. If you're open, shoot. If not, pass it. But don't be stationary. Move. Still, it's a struggle, like a classical flutist trying to learn to play jazz flute on stage in real time. In a November 9th loss to Phoenix, the Warriors tally 26 turnovers, 10 by Curry alone, after also notching 26 the game before against Houston. Curry, for his part, is relying on what Kerr calls horrible tendencies. Careless left-handed hook passes over the top of defenses, but also something far worse, remaining stationary after making passes. Defenses are manhandling Curry, and Kerr tells his star to run from pressure, not fight it. That even a back cut without getting the ball is a productive play because he's taking the defense with him. Instead, Curry, as Kerr came to call it, is dancing in place and stopping their offense as a result. Meanwhile, Draymond Green, former second-round draft pick, is trying too hard to establish himself as one of the team's top playmakers. He'll show potential, then become frustrated if he fails. Keep it simple, the staff tells the third-year forward. You can make plays, but make the simple play. For weeks, Kerr has harped on the turnovers. In August, Kerr had visited Seattle Seahawks coach Pete Carroll during his team's training camp and had seen, in the Seahawks' defensive meeting room, a football on a rubber handle attached to a wall. As players came in and out, they'd hit the ball, trying to knock it loose. Carroll believed the habit would cause more fumbles. Ball possession, Carroll preached, is everything. For the first six games in this regard, the Warriors have been a white-hot mess, like a race car with a wobbly wheel. Game 7, November 11th, would be a date with the Spurs, defending NBA champions, and the gold standard for ball movement. Kerr had played four seasons and won two titles under Spurs coach Greg Popovich and had admired how the Spurs' passing helped foster a selfless, team-first culture. It wasn't just play your best five guys to death, Kerr says. It was play everybody. You go deep into your rotation, even if it means losing a couple of games in the regular season. Just empower everybody. It's kind of the beauty of basketball, the old cliche about the total being greater than the sum of its parts. I believe in all of that. Five guys have to operate together, but the other seven on the bench, or nine, however many, they've got to feel part of it. Revenge would also be a factor. The Spurs had beaten the Warriors in the playoffs two seasons earlier, then swept them in the regular season the year before Kerr arrived. The reason we made all these changes, Gelfin says, was to get on their level. From day one, Curry recalls Kerr had talked about the Spurs and their legacy. Though the season is young, the Warriors know this game will be a measuring stick. They do not measure up. It begins well enough, the Warriors clinging to a 38-34 lead midway through the second quarter. But then, the Spurs hit their stride. With less than a minute before halftime, forward Boris Diaw pump fakes two Warriors on the perimeter, drives and zips the ball to Manu Ginobili on the right wing, who catches it with his left hand and in the same motion whips it to the right corner, where Tony Parker has enough time to do his taxes before swishing a three-pointer. Six seconds of perfection. 
After halftime, the Spurs cash in on more sloppy Warriors turnovers, an errant pass by Curry, a fumble by Green. By this point in the season, Kerr has seen so many mistakes that he's been repeating repeatedly the phrase, we're just slinging the ball around out there. It's like a mantra or a koan. He's saying it so much that his wife Margot has begun chiding him for it. And that's what Kerr sees against the Spurs. More carelessness, more slinging the ball. The Spurs who feature the same big three, Tim Duncan, Ginobili, and Parker, as they had when Kerr played beside them a dozen years before, cruised to a 113-100 win. In the locker room, Kerr explains to his deflated team that it doesn't matter that the Warriors had outshot the Spurs. Not only had they lost the turnover battle, 19-8, they'd lost their focus. Look, guys, Gentry adds, you don't want to say it, but this is how we want to play. This is who we want to emulate. It's an enigma and a conundrum. They need to play with pace, but protect the ball. They need to play unselfishly, but not too unselfishly. Pass the ball, but don't turn down a great shot. Can we do that? Kerr asks. It's June 13, 2017, 24 hours after the Warriors have won their second championship in three years. They've humiliated the Cavaliers in five games, and Vino Volo in Oakland International Airport is a buzz, as usual. Wine unites everyone, Volo staffers like to say, but it's seat C1 and C2 at the end of the bar where Kerr and Frazier sat on that August afternoon that to them are now legend. Lawrence Flores, a 36-year-old assistant manager, was working the floor that day, stealing peeks at Kerr's demonstration. He's told the story a dozen times to friends and family. That could have been the creation of this offense, he tells them. That could have been the start. When Nikovic, now 32, watches the Warriors, he sometimes sees not players, but cranberries and almonds. After their loss three seasons ago to the Spurs, and inspired by the manner in which San Antonio had filleted them, the Warriors went on to win their next 16 games. It was, Kerr says of that Spurs loss, the best thing that could have ever happened to us. Pre-Spurs loss, the Warriors had ranked last in turnover percentage, with Green amassing more turnovers than assists. The rest of the season, they would rank sixth in turnover percentage, with Green averaging twice as many assists as turnovers. And the epiphany arrived just five days after the Spurs' defeat. By virtue of a schedule quirk, the Warriors were granted a four-day break after a road game against the Lakers. And when Kerr entered the visitors' locker room at Staples Center before tip-off, he proffered a deal. Play the way we've been talking about and play the right way. Take care of the ball, defend, do all the stuff, and I'll give you the next two days off. The players literally gasped in disbelief. That night, there wasn't one moment or a singular play, but a river of them. A constant flow, the ball pinballing around the court side to side to the tune of 343 passes. Beautiful, Kerr says, thinking back on it. The Warriors scored a season-high 136 points. In the days prior, what Kerr had most wanted was to know that his words were being heeded. You just want to know the ship is heading in the right direction, he says. And as he watched the route unfold, he saw everything he had been preaching. His players carrying out his vision with focus and flair. The transformation was radical and ruthlessly effective. By the end of the season, the Warriors ranked second in offensive efficiency and first in defensive efficiency. They averaged 315.9 passes per game, nearly 70 more than the season before. The second biggest leap in the league. They had the highest increase that season in assists per game and secondary assists per game. And the second highest jump in assists to turnover ratio. 
they would go on to win an NBA record 73 games the next season, falling one game shy of a second consecutive NBA title. And Curry would win his second straight NBA MVP award, just as Nash had done in Phoenix exactly one decade earlier in the offense that so inspired Kerr. The Warriors ultimately found that if defenses were panicked about the first pass, by the time their third pass arrived, they were rewarded with a wide-open corner three. The main goal, Curry says, is to just make the defense make as many decisions as you can so that they're going to mess up at some point with all that ball movement and body movement and whatnot. But it took a while for us to kind of get the understanding of where each other was going to be without having to call a set play or whatnot. So it took a while. Actually, it took eight regular season games. It took and it held. The Warriors today claim the three highest assist per game averages of the past two decades and all have come in the past three years. I can't sit here and say we knew this was going to happen, Frazier says. But if I go back and read Steve's thesis on what he wished for, it's very close to what happened. Consider, since the start of the 1995-96 season, nine of the ten best teams in offensive efficiency were either the mid-90s Bulls, where Kerr played, the Nash-led Suns, where Kerr managed, or Kerr's modern-day Warriors. Kerr's basketball journey weaved through offensive greatness, and then he built his own. It was like it was destiny to have Steve come in and try to coach that way, says Luke Walton, former Warriors assistant coach, because they were built to play that way. And after two seasons alongside Kerr, soon after Walton agreed to take over the rebuilding Lakers, the new coach announced to his team that he wanted to create a nightly goal. He wanted something to establish a culture, something to make everyone feel a part of a whole. Luke Walton wanted 300 passes a game. Welcome back. That was the charcuterie board that revolutionized basketball by Baxter Holmes. Uh, Baxter, the chief culinary NBA correspondent, uh, joins us now from L.A. Uh, how are you doing, Baxter? Oh, great. That's a wonderful title. I need to get that on my next business card. You seem to have discovered some sort of niche, and uh, I think so far it's working out pretty well for you. Whatever it takes, man. Whatever it takes. <laughs> <laughs> so, obviously, as, as an NBA reporter, um, the Warriors are one of the most well-covered teams in the league. Uh, obviously so much more so after another championship. How difficult is it to find or say something new or, or tell us something that we haven't already learned about the Warriors? It, it's incredibly difficult because not only are they the most well-covered team um, in recent NBA memory, they are also incredibly media-friendly. They give a ton of access to a ton of people, and it's really hard as a reporter to – feel like you are able to get something that's your own. I mean, you're kind of fighting for little details. And, and if you're able to get enough to actually feel like you have your own story, something that people haven't been told, it's a, it's a real win. I've, this is something I've talked about with other reporters plenty. But yeah, it, it is a real challenge uh, trying to tell a story about the Warriors that people haven't heard before. Just real quick aside, though, why uh, what makes them sort of different in terms of their approach to the access? I mean, as, as somebody who covers teams and has been around the league, um, what's sort of the state of play there? That's It's a good question. Uh, I think in part because they were so terrible for so long that maybe they just – they were really hungry for any kind of coverage at all um, that maybe they, they just kind of opened the doors to media and were really inviting and whatever the case may be. 
Um, and that has just stayed on even, you know, now as they become this incredible powerhouse. But if you, you know, every year the Pro Basketball Writers Association gives out awards for PR friendliness and accessibility and helpfulness and whatnot. And the Warriors are, you know, one of the finalists, not if not winners of that award every year. So where did this story start for you? I mean, was it the anecdote? Was it some sort of deeper curiosity about Kerr's schemes, uh, it seems like there's a lot of possible entry points here, but how did this begin? Uh, well, when I was uh, covering the Lakers, uh, I remember early on in Luke Walton's tenure, he said he wanted 300 passes per game. And he would say that uh, in post-game press conferences. He talked about it at practices. And I was just kind of curious where that came from. And so I asked him one day, and he said, oh, that was something that uh, Steve Kerr did up with the Warriors. And I just kind of kept that nugget in my back pocket. And when I was up there for the finals, um, I was asking around, like, hey, how did this – where did this come about? What do people remember about it? And honestly, there there wasn't too much to go on. And uh, it was in talking to the assistant coach, Bruce Frazier, about, you know, the, the early days of the offense that he casually mentioned a line at some point through about, you know, remembering Steve Kerr being at a wine bar in the Oakland airport and arranging, I think as he said, uh, nuts and raisins on a napkin. <laughs> and I, that, my ears perked up when he said that, and I thought, like, that's kind of – I mean, you always hear stories of, like, you know, great ideas or, uh, you know, the opening lines to a novel, you know, being written on a bar napkin or something like that. And I was just – that kind of made me interested. And so at the end of the finals, instead of flying uh, out of SFO back to Los Angeles where I live, I flew – out of Oakland, and I stopped at that wine bar, and I started talking to employees, and they remembered that day very vividly, and they connected me with the guy who uh, was the main character in the opening anecdote and served uh, Steve that fateful charcuterie board, and he remembered everything vividly, and things kind of went from there. Well, let's break that down a little bit. In terms of recreating the scene, obviously it's it's sort of the, the origin story here, one of the most important parts of this. How did you go about recreating that walk us through the process of, of obviously it's more than just just sort of making the rounds of interviews there at the wine bar yeah yeah um i look this is something i'm learning more and more and trying to do magazine style uh journalism but you know the the art of scenes and recreating scenes and writing them and it it takes a little bit different reporting i'm learning is uh a guy who kind of grew up in the newspaper uh business so you know, a lot of the questions I'm asking are, you know, put me there, explain, I, you know, what what did you see? What did you hear? What did he say? What did you say in return? Um, and then going back to certain people and saying, okay, you know, th- this is kind of the line of dialogue that this person described. Is this accurate? Is this how it happened? Um, you know, where was this person sitting? What happened next? What, you know, so, so many, so many uh, small detailed questions to try to recreate the scene that, uh, you know, it's kind of in my head as I look back, it's like some of them are really silly, but like you, you absolutely need them to be able to recreate those scenes. So that's, again, that's something I'm kind of learning on the fly. Well, what, what would you say was the most crucial detail for you in, 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 rede- in redeveloping that? Oh, gosh. You know, the, the one I really was really interested in was like, okay, what actually he was doing on the charcuterie, charcuterie board? Uh, yeah. What did he line it up in a kind of five on five scenario? <laughs> what was he? What was he? And, and what was he using? And what was he? How was how was his hands 
moving? Was he mentioning, you know, what was he saying as he's doing this? What were other, when, were other people looking on? Um, you know, who was on offense, who was on defense? I think right. it was the almonds on offense and the cranberries on defense. And then, you know, walk me through his motions and, and what he said next. And he kind of pulled back and he explained uh, that he didn't want to run a full-on triangle, which is what he was ex- describing on the board. Uh, but he wanted to run kind of a hybrid. And so, yeah, he described all that. And then I... I went back to Steve. This is kind of funny. I went back to Steve and I said, "Look, you know this guy. This is um, uh, this is what he was saying. How he was describing it. How does this all sound to you?" And Steve was like, "That's a hundred percent accurate." He said, "I." <laughs> Steve was really taken aback. This is kind of behind the scenes. Steve was really taken aback at the impression that he made on that guy that day, uh, and how vividly that person remembered it. And then, like the other staffers at the place as well, he was really, really tickled as I was kind of recounting that for him so uh you've got this story looking at how they've revolutionized the game in terms of what makes this team tick how they're able to have such an explosive offense and how it comes down to passing but ultimately what you're writing about here is is sort of uh, uh, an offensive scheme a plan or something like that not necessarily people how do you approach writing a story like that in a way that keeps it compelling and keeps it interesting because obviously it's a little bit it's a little bit more different than if you're sitting down and just writing a profile about somebody yeah well look x's and o's are not my forte i am not an analytics you know forward kind of writer um i, I rely on the a lot on the folks at uh, espn stats and info who are incredible for tons <laughs> of assistance on everything, and uh, without them, I'd be floating adrift at sea. Aimlessly. Shout out to the stats and info for saving yes, everybody. Yes, the amazing Mike Adams, Michael Schwartz, there's a ton of folks. Um, so, you know, I, I, I write human stories. Uh, that's what interests me far more. I'm, I'm way more interested in the people than necessarily what's going on in the court. And uh, it was a challenge with this one because I was afraid at any moment that I might lose the general reader and mm-hmm. lose their attention because it gets in kind of the nitty-gritty of what it was they were trying to – um, create, but so much for me was thinking about the tension of okay, they are going to completely and dramatically revamp what it is they're going to do, but there's the risk that they could lose the player's faith that they could decide at any moment, you know what we were good before this guy got here he's new he hasn't been a head coach before we don't want to go along with what he's saying we're going to stick to what we know has worked and uh, and just kind of abandon it. So, you know, and, and also, look, it helped as the Warriors were describing this to me, them describing this real tension that existed. You know, teams don't necessarily try to win preseason games, but they looked at those games as crucial because it was the first time they were unveiling this offense and they needed it to work if, if, if only to try to uh, believe that the players were believing that it could work and then kind of buying into the system. So, and then, the, you know, as I mentioned in the piece, there was this pivotal game against the Spurs early in the regular season where the Warriors had been, you know, passing a lot as they, as Steve Kerr wanted, but they had been turning the ball over at an incredible rate, uh, leading the league in that category. And they get their clocks cleaned by a team that they wanted to emulate as kind of the gold standard for ball movement and a lot of other things. And, you know, there was a kind of a come to Jesus moment after that, that, look, if we are going to be that good, if we want to be as good as the team that just beat us, we need to really, really buy in. And from then on, they won 16 games and are kind of the Warriors we see today. But, yeah, I was thinking all throughout, like, I need to emphasize the people. I need to emphasize the tension. Otherwise, we are going to get lost 
in the X's and O's. And while there's an audience for X's and O's and the nitty-gritty, it is not the audience I'm, I'm necessarily trying to reach. I want to reach everybody. I think that, uh, you know, the, the audience for humans is much larger than the audience for – or the, the, for human stories is much uh, larger than the audience just for, like, X's and O's and analytics. So uh, I'm glad that you mentioned sort of finding the tension there in this piece. But the other part of this, as you mentioned, is this this, this question of buying in. And how did you just sort of develop that as the second level to this piece? Because it seems like it's a it's a theme that's very prevalent. Yeah, well, you, look, you look at, at how well they play, and it, it seems like natural, right, that it would work. And um, I remember when I was standing with Bob Myers, uh, the uh, Warriors general manager outside of a charity event during the finals, and he was describing to me watching the team early on and how bad they looked mm-hmm. and this kind of concern about, you know, is this going to is this gonna work? So the tension was in some ways really natural um, in, in, in trying to relay that. And then the other thing was um, some of the staffers were describing this, this uh, uh, retreat in Napa Valley where they had kind of gathered before the preseason and mm-hmm. – they all, you know, it was very light, you know, again, Snap of Valley, like how awesome is that? Uh, but there was this understanding there, like, look, we, we're a new staff. We have a head coach with no experience. We are going to take a team that uh, was last in the league in passing and turn them into one that passes at an incredible rate, move them from the bottom of the scale to the very top. The problem is, you know, along with Stephen having no experience at, in his current role, um, is that the team was good last year. And if at any point this doesn't seem like it's working, they can just, you know, brush us off uh, and decide to go back to what was working before. You know, right. they, they were very evident about like this, I mean, it's tension, it's fear, it's whatever, this this uncertainty or unease that this would work. Um, I mean, again, like you look at it now, it's like, oh yeah, natural, this is natural. I mean, I think, you know, Luke Walton told me at the end of the story, it was almost like it was destiny for Steve Kerr to come in and implement this style. But, you know, in the days and weeks leading up to them actually trying to do it, and again, it's incredibly radically different than what they were doing before, there was not this feeling that it was a sure thing. Um, In fact, it was, there was more fear and unease that it wouldn't work than it would. Right, right. And let's also not forget that that uh, early scene also has uh, the great moment of Alvin Gentry and uh, what was it, croquet? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What did he say? I'm the greatest uh, black croquet ever. And he and Steve Kerr told me he took his shirt off and started pouring Perrier over everybody. That is uh, that is the most Napa Valley moment I think I've, I've ever heard in my entire life. Yeah, um, <laughs> it was pretty great. So as you as you said at the top, you had some good time with the Warriors. They're very media friendly. How much time did you get with Kerr, and you know what was his sort of reaction to trying to kind of dig deep on on all this? Because obviously, you know, there's a lot of coaches in in the NBA who don't necessarily want to give up all their secrets. There's some like Pop who don't really want to give up too much of anything at all. Uh, so, how much time did you get with him, and, and what was his response to sort of wanting to unravel all of this? Oh gosh, well, we talked probably for an hour total. I actually spoke with. Almost everybody aside from him, um, I think I talked to almost everybody at the finals. And then in August, mid to late August is when I think I spoke with Kerr over the phone. And uh, we talked for about an hour. And I was just kind of relaying to him different things that his staffers had told me, like about, oh, that pivotal Spurs game or, uh, you know, the scene at Vino Volo um, at the Oakland airport or, um, 
you know, just a, a lot of those key moments and key scenes or, you know, working with Sammy to come up, Sammy Gelfand, the Warriors manager of direct uh, of analytics to come up with this um, uh, figure for 300 passes, which is passes per game, which kind of became their, their, their ballpark figure that they shot for to try to create this culture of ball movement. And Steve was, you know, wonderful in recounting a lot of this stuff. You know, he, uh, and a lot of the people had kind of, it, as you mentioned certain things that other people had said, or you do your, your reporting and you're like, oh, I want to check on this. They kind of, it, it walks them down memory lane and it kind of sparks memories anew. Like, for instance, when I mentioned that Spurs game, he was like, oh, I remember, you know, that game was the best thing that ever could have happened to us. It was a, kind of the turning point for us as a team. You know, he was recalling, um, you know, what, what he said exactly to the team after that, you know, and then I, and then later in the story, um, talking to him about like the moment when he saw what he needed to see when this team, when it finally all clicked. And then right. it was this game against the Lakers. I think a few games after that, or like five games after that, uh, or five days, I think after that Spurs game where, you know, they have a, a, an unusual four day break after the Lakers game, he goes in, before the game, tells the players, if we play the right way, if we do everything we've been talking about and we buy in and there's focus and whatnot, I'll give you guys two days off. And there's a gasp in the locker room. And then they go out and score 136 points. And that was actually one of my first games covering the Lakers uh, for ESPN. Um, I was new on the job then for us. And I remember that vividly, just like, oh, my God, this team is incredible. And then, like, looking back, as he left the arena that night, he said, uh, you know, that was the first time where he felt like, all right, this this is going to work. This can work. Yeah. And uh, but yeah, it's you know they were they were they were great. I think for them it was kind of fun. If you look at now where they're at, just incredible. You know that you know this is a, a team we'll probably end up telling our grandkids about. Uh, it was fun for them to look back. I think at the very beginning, and and those early days of of trying to implement something. I mean, all of them to a man said they never thought that it would work so well and work so well so early. They just had a hope and a dream and a, and a, and a plan. Um, and uh, sure enough, it's it's worked out okay, I guess. Well, lastly, Baxter, the story takes place mostly in, in the past tense. And as we touched on in the beginning, you're recreating scenes, specifically, you know, obviously talking about the, the scene in the, in the wine bar, but Overall, when you're writing something that is so much rooted in the past, what what are the trip lines? You know, what are the things that you have to be on the lookout for in terms of how you are uh, recreating the past? Uh, well, people's memory can be, you know, fuzzy. Um, you know, where they're talking to the employees at the bar, and and one person says this or one person says that, and you're you're having to look, you're having to triple check everything all the time on every story. But um, anytime you're doing something of, of years ago. Uh, you have to be, you know, doubly, uh, or you have to work that much harder because people's memories can be a little fuzzy, and they might misremember a statistic, or a particular moment, or a date, um, or something, and that can throw a lot of things out of whack, especially when you're trying to recreate scenes. So that's one of the trickier parts. Um, it's, you know, it's also tricky because some of the statistics that we're using, uh, you know, they only date back so far, so you're kind of limited in, in that regard because, you know, technology has advanced a lot lately. But, you know, thankfully this wasn't too far in the past. I did a story once um, in the 19 – base of the 19 – an event that happened on a day in like the 1950s in Alcatraz. And there was only a handful of people at this specific event I was writing about who were still alive um, and had like, you know, their, their memories intact. So that was a lot more challenging than this one. I'll say that. Baxter Holmes, thank you so much for joining us. 
Thanks for having me, Justin. For this story and more, you can go to ESPN.com slash Double Truck, Double Truck being all one word. This episode was created by the team at ESPN Audio and produced by Michael Rabier. The Double Truck team includes Ryan Graner, Rick Santos, Jenna Janovey, and Eric Neal. Remember, if you like what you're hearing, you can subscribe to Double Truck Stories on your favorite podcast player. That would be greatly appreciated. We'll be back soon with more stories, but until then, I'm Justin Ellis. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.